We're going to stop for a moment and we're going to have a Q&A session. So I'll just let John sit down for a moment. You'll see on the screen the Q&A www.slido uh, with a number there. If you'd like to log in that, you can actually put a question in. Uh, we have, have we had any questions come in so far, Nath? We are? Is that a thumbs up? So we have got some questions that have come. Um, just but I'm going to now move to our Q&A session, and if you can come back up, John, and uh, if we can have the first question, which I'm going to read, and John's going to answer. So, John, this is the first question that comes in. How much of the stuff in the Bible has been verified by archaeological findings, and what about the resurrection? Well, uh, what about the resurrection? Well, there's no archaeological evidence of the resurrection itself. When you think about it, like, what could it leave behind? You know, like an X-ray on the wall or something like that. Uh, but there's plenty of archaeological evidence for all sorts of things that the Bible lists. I mean, I gave you a really fun example from the Old Testament, which freaked people out when they first read Jehoiakim, King of Judah's ration voucher. Um, but th this happens loads. Uh, there's, there's a peculiar five-column pool mentioned in John's Gospel, uh, and it's said that it's to be in Jerusalem. And they hadn't found it for decades and decades of archaeological discovery and then dug slightly to the left and found it. And sure enough, five rows of columns, exactly as John's Gospel said. There was another pool called the Pool of Siloam uh, that John says was a big bathing pool for the public. And again, we hadn't discovered it until 2004. Right? That's just the other day for a historian. And they were doing some sewerage uh, works in Jerusalem in the Siloam district and they uncovered the largest Jewish bathing pool yet found. We found uh, an inscription to Pontius Pilate uh, actually, it's probably better to describe it as Pontius Pilate's own inscription to himself, uh, <clears throat> being a good Roman, um, uh, which, you know, gives us the exact title of Pontius Pilate. And what do you know? The Gospels got his exact title uh, correctly, unlike other sources from antiquity, which give him a different title. The Gospels get the exact title right. Uh, very recently, we uncovered, I say we, I had nothing to do with it, uh, but uh, we uh, discovered uh, our first house in Nazareth, dating from the first half of the first century. We'd found all sorts of stuff from second and third century Nazareth, and so some people thought there never was a Nazareth in Jesus' day. And, uh, and then in, in Christmas 2009, the Israel Antiquities Authority uh, announced the discovery of a very early house, uh, which you can go and visit, and I could go on and on. But there's quite a bit. There's quite a bit. And the, the important thing to realize is that we probably have less than 1% of the remains today that we know existed. Less than 1% of inscriptions have been found. Less than 1% of houses have been found. Less than 1% of um, uh, uh, statues have been found, and so on. So we're still dealing with only tiny proportions of evidence, but even that 1% that has remained, that we have accidentally discovered, only points in the direction of the things that the Gospels teach. There, there is no archaeological find that contradicts anything the New Testament says. All the ones that we find are either neutral with respect to New Testament claims or they actually endorse uh, what the New Testament claims. Fantastic. Next question. Uh, my university lecturer told me that the Bible is, in, is invalid because it claims to be the Word of God. How would you approach sharing the Gospel with him? Oh, I don't know. Uh, maybe you could introduce me to him. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know what his discipline is. You know, maybe he knows as much about history as I know about engineering, right? Uh, you know, the, the, one of the problems with academics, and not only academics, but, but academics are really good at this. Uh, so are lawyers, actually. Anyway, so I'll stick with academics. It's what I call competency extrapolation, where because you're awesome at one thing, you begin to extrapolate that you must be pretty awesome at all the things. 
Have you ever come across this? Academics do this. So you can be a brilliant I don't engineer. Think it's just lawyers, John. <laughs> you can be a brilliant engineer uh, and, and then pontificate on history. Or you can be a brilliant historian and you pontificate about, I don't know, maths or something. And it's dumb. We should all be uh, humble. I'm not sure I'm even answering the question. But uh, uh, I would love to sit down with your academic. If that academic has a, has a, a knowledge of history, that would be, be great fun. Uh, but these things often take long conversations. And I, I think the important thing is not to be anxious about it. Uh, because I just think this is true, right? So it doesn't matter what people throw at it. As I said right at the outset, the, the Jesus of history, just you throw every punch at him and he'll just be smiling sweetly, solidly, immovable, friendly. Uh, and so we non-anxiously have conversations with people about these things. Okay, thank you, John. Next question. In a culture that devalues absolute truth, mm. how do you argue the truth of the Bible as being significant? Well, our culture um, tends to draw on whichever argument helps it in, its, in that moment. Because I often find um, you might be talking with someone who is really into sort of absolute truths, okay? Like a more scientific engineering type of person. And they want to know evidence and facts. And so you lay out the evidence and the facts. And then suddenly at the end of that conversation, they're feeling a bit awkward about the evidence and facts. And suddenly go, oh, but how can you know anything's true? They suddenly become this sort of postmodern philosophical person. But I find the same thing happens the other way. I meet people who uh, will start out by going, ah, you know, you can know nothing really. Uh, you know, it's really what is an authentic life. And so you have that conversation about what would make an authentic life and how you would know if you ever came across an authentic life. And they get to the point where they go, oh, yeah, I can see that. And then they'll suddenly go, but what's the proof? And so now you've got to go back to a conversation about evidence. So I, I actually genuinely feel that our culture is playing with two gears at the same time. When it helps to believe in that nothing's true, uh, they'll go for that. When it helps to uh, believe that there's not good enough evidence, I'd believe if there were evidence, we go, we go for that. Um, but I'm of the view that Christianity can handle both. Christianity has this wonderful combination of being um, arguable at the highest level, philosophically, scientifically, historically, etc., uh, but it doesn't leave it there. And, and frankly, no one makes the biggest decisions of their life only by historical scientific evidence. There's all this other stuff about what would it mean if I believed it? How would it animate my life? How would it help me see reality? And I think Christianity, uh, and, and I think next week I'll, I'll be bearing this out a little bit more, I think Christianity lights up your world. It not only has evidence, when you look at the world through sort of Christian lenses, it actually makes sense of stuff. That's a far more existential uh, approach to knowing what is true. And Christianity, I mean, I know I'm completely biased, but Christianity scores really highly on both. Okay, I'm going to see if there's one more question. And we do have one more, and we're going to finish up on this one. Where does all the historical evidence of Jesus fit in a conversation with a non-believer to give them an understanding of grace? There's an interesting question for you, John. <laughs> I'll read it again. Where does all the historical evidence of Jesus fit in a conversation with a non-believer to give them an understanding of grace? Well, at one level, it doesn't. Um, but at one level, human beings, a lot of human beings, think there's nothing to the New Testament at all. They think you might as well be reading The Hobbit. If you say, hey, have you ever read Luke's Gospel? They go, nah, but nor have I read the Iliad. So why, like, why, why do I read that? So a lot of people actually begin with the view that there's nothing historical about the New Testament and therefore the value of the, new of the history that, that I'm doing uh, today and a little bit over the coming weeks, the value of it is, is, I think, to show 
the skeptical person that when you pick up a New Testament, it's a serious historical text. I'm not, I'm not trying to prove you to become a Christian, like give you evidence enough to whack you over the head to become a Christian. I don't believe historical evidence can do that, and I don't think we make our biggest decisions based on historical evidence, but enough evidence can at least convince a, a pretty skeptical person that the Gospels need to be taken seriously. They are not the Iliad. It is not the Hobbit. It is genuine history. And, and from my perspective, even though I love history, I don't value it that highly. Um, I, I lay out this historical stuff simply to plead people, pick up a gospel, read it yourself. Because I think the real magic, if I can call it that, the real magic happens when you encounter the person in one of the gospels, Jesus Christ. He leaps out of the page and grabs you. And that's not something I can historically demonstrate. You, you've got to experience it for yourself. I think on that note, we're going to uh, finish up. Can I get you to thank John Dixon for coming tonight? And as I said, John's going to be back next three weeks for our summer sessions. And that's a great transition and segue. Uh, one of the most important things is to actually pick up the Bible and particularly the Gospels and read them yourself. And if you've never read any of the Gospels, as you leave, there is a Gospel of Luke, which is the full story uh, that John began the first four verses of tonight. And you can take one as you leave. They're free. This is a modern Australian translation. And the most important thing is to realise that we have both a solid foundation, but when you meet the Lord Jesus, there is a very soft landing as you encounter His love and His grace and the fact that He's died for us on the cross to forgive us all that we've done wrong under God. And so on that note, we're going to stop and we're going to sing now to uh, do a couple of things. Um, on the screen, you'll see a Slido address with a hashtag Z089. Uh, if you want to get your phones or devices out and pump a couple of questions in, you're very welcome to. Uh, at five o'clock, we had about 20 questions. We got through about three or four. I'll just let you know that. They... Uh, put the most popular ones up on the top. Um, and so if you want to go there and log a couple of questions, that'd be great. While you're doing that, a couple of things also to do. Uh, you would have received a Hello Connect card as you came in. We'd love you to fill in that. Uh, if you're a visitor, please let us know you're here. We'd love to be in touch with you. Uh, place those in the basket when they come around the last song. Uh, if you've got any questions you want to put on that, please do. Uh, we'll see how we can get answers to you. Um, secondly, there was a Is Jesus History card. Tonight is just the beginning of the summer sessions. Uh, do bring someone along with you next week. We'd love to see more friends, uh, more people who don't come to church to hear this wonderful uh, teaching from John about is Jesus history, fact or fiction, relevant or irrelevant. And he's going to be continuing the journey next week on the teacher who changed the world. So building off tonight's, uh, if I can say, the firm foundation, we're going to learn more about the person of Jesus and what he taught. Um, and also, just to give a teaser in terms of what's coming up in February, uh, if you're wanting to find out more about the Christian faith, uh, we've got a wonderful course called Alpha. It's a great time to explore, uh, to learn in the context of community and over a meal. It kicks off on Wednesday, the 12th of February. Uh, please have a think if you'd like to join us in the coming weeks. What we're going to do there now is have a time of Q&A. Uh, I'm going to welcome John back up. And what I'll do is I'm going to read from the screen uh, the questions. So send them to slido.com, code Z089. And uh, very shortly, I'll have a question up. Here we go. First one's already come in. Uh, thank you, John. Here's the question for you. What argument against Christianity do you find to be most persuasive and how do you overcome it? Oh. There you go. 
Wow. So what's the hardest question in terms of trying to defend the Christian faith and what's your response to it? There's another way of putting it. And there are 20 of these coming. Um, <laughs> look, I don't think it's anything to do with the sort of philosophy and, and history uh, or, or science or anything like that. Uh, if I'm really honest with you, it's um, the, the issue of God's judgment and hell. People are being sent to hell. Um, I mean, I, I reckon every soft-hearted Christian struggles with it just privately, uh, but when you're asked about it by sceptics, it's really hard. Are you saying God's going to send me to hell just for not believing? Um, and so, uh, yeah, I would say that is the question I uh, most don't want to be asked in public. Uh, thank you for asking it in a sneaky way. Um, in terms of uh, what I reply... How do you respond oh, to that? my goodness... Uh, maybe this needs to be one of the talks I come back and give, but um, I, I, what I ask people to try and do is sort of step through it slowly. Let's, let's begin with, um, do you want God to be just towards, say, the human trafficker? You know, a million girls right now are being trafficked around the world, and loads of people are going to get away with that, and they are destroying countless numbers of lives. Do you agree that it would be a good thing for God to be just and bring punishment on those people. And I find that most people go, yep, okay. So we agree in principle that God should judge. Um, to the degree that I myself participate or you participate in any element of evil, wouldn't it therefore be right that God judges you? Not the same, perhaps, as the human trafficker, but to the degree that you've participated in evil, wouldn't that be appropriate? And I think, logically, you have to say yes. Because I don't believe that God's judgment finally will be equal to everyone. I think this is a common misconception, actually. Jesus spoke of different levels of judgment that is proportional to our deeds. So God will be fair in all of his, in all of his judgments. And then um, I sort of flip it around and say, okay, so here's God who must be just, must judge, but has done the most extraordinary thing. He has entered into the world, and died on a cross in Jesus, taken the punishment of hell into himself, and then offers free forgiveness, here's the thing, not just to you, but to the human trafficker. And what I find happens is the person who was complaining that God is just at the beginning of the conversation is now complaining that God would be so forgiving as to let off the human trafficker because of Jesus' death. Now they're complaining he's too merciful. And so I think something funny is going on there. And I would say the scandal of God's loving mercy to forgive anyone because Jesus took hell on their behalf is an even greater mystery than the awful mystery that he will judge people. But much more can and should be said. Okay, thank you, John. Very good answer. Um, next question. If we can verify the historicity of other religious figures, i.e. Muhammad or the Buddha, what sets apart the historicity of Jesus? Oh, well, A, you can't. Um, so let's just take uh, the Buddha. Um, I'm pretty sure the Buddha lived. Siddhartha Gautama was a prince. But, you know, we don't have a single writing about him for 350 years after his death. That's not just John Dixon's favourite dates. That is what every Buddhist scholar will tell you. Not a single written thing for 350 years. So it's in a totally different level. You know, the um, uh, official biography of Muhammad 
And again, this is every uh, Muslim who knows these things will agree with what I'm saying. The official biography of Muhammad was written 175 years after Muhammad's death. 175 years. So, so we're not even in, in the same universe of historical evidence, but the more important thing I was trying to get across is, actually, Buddhists don't think the events of Buddha's life are the thing that they trust as their religion. And Muslims don't think the events of Muhammad's life are the thing they trust. But Christians do. Christians do trust in the death, the life, death and resurrection. They actually put all, they gamble all of their credibility on these core things actually happening in time and space. So it's an entirely different uh, problem uh, for Christianity. Um, some Buddhists have said you could, it could even be true that Buddha never lived and you could believe in Buddhism because it's a philosophy that he taught. Now, there's no way that could be true of Christianity because if Jesus never lived, he never died. If he never died, he never rose again. The whole show collapses. Okay. Next question. Why don't all ancient historians believe in Christ if the evidence is so undeniable? There you go. Well, I don't want to give the impression that everything is undeniable. I think there are a few things that are undeniable, how early the texts are, that Luke is faithful to his sources, that this is not a bully text and, and so on. So there are some things that there is very wide agreement on. Um, but I don't think you can prove everything. And there's enough wiggle room for people to say, oh, I don't believe that. Uh, the classic example is the resurrection. So you will find that there are secular historians who agree there's very good evidence there was an empty tomb and that people thought they saw Jesus almost immediately after his death. They will say, yep, they're facts. And then you say, okay, what explains it? They say, we don't know. Empty tomb, people thought they saw him, we don't know what explains it. So what they're doing there is they're saying, look, there's enough historical evidence to arrive at a sort of a clear picture that um, there was an empty tomb and people thought they saw him. But, but we don't have the kind of evidence that would push you over the line to say, oh, I believe Jesus is the risen Lord. So uh, I don't want to give the impression that the evidence is so clear-cut, everyone should become a Christian. Um, but the other thing, and it's perhaps even more important than that, is that even if it were incontrovertible at every level. Sadly, that's not how we make decisions based on evidence. Most of our big decisions in life aren't based on simple facts. It's on our preferences, the things we want to be true and don't want to be true. And the human mind is so good at rationalizing that you can actually rationalize your way out of something that looks compellingly true. So I do think that the broad narrative of Jesus is compellingly true. But I can see ways, if you don't want it to be true, you can find a way out. And so that's why everyone has to just assess not just the evidence and the intellect, but assess where their own heart is at. Because our hearts can very easily be attracted to one thing, disgusted by another, and that is playing a role in whether we embrace or reject Christianity. I suspect we've got lots of questions here, but I'm going to give you one last one, John. Okay. And for those questions that didn't get up, we'll see how we can try and address them. Um, last question is this. Why wouldn't Jesus himself have written a gospel? Why wouldn't Jesus have written a gospel himself? Um, what advantage would that have? 
Because there's something really cool about there being four Gospels written by different people, two of whom are eyewitnesses, two of whom are colleagues of eyewitnesses, from diverse perspectives. That actually makes it pretty easy uh, to, to assess the evidence. If we just had one Gospel written by Jesus, you, you can be sure people will be finding sneaky ways out of it. Oh, Jesus was biased about himself. Okay, uh, if, we wouldn't, if we only had a gospel written by Jesus, uh, we wouldn't be able to compare it with other evidence, other perspectives. It's just the gospel written by Jesus. But there's a simpler historical uh, point to make. Um, very, very few people ever wrote things in the ancient world. Uh, 10 to 15% of the population could read and write. So your first instinct was not to read and write. In the ancient world, you trusted oral tradition before you trusted written tradition. And oral tradition is the practice of memorizing things your teacher said. And we know this is true of Greek philosophers. They insisted that their disciples memorize certain syllogisms and certain sayings. We know this is true of Jewish rabbis. Um, They were far more interested in knowing that a disciple could repeat one of their parables back to them or one of their legal rulings than they were interested that a disciple could write it down. So if you think like an ancient person rather than a modern person, it is not at all surprising that Jesus chose the method that we know was the more popular and more trusted method of instilling in his own disciples the things he said and did. And they did a pretty darn good job of recalling it. I'm going to say it's been wonderful to have you here for the first of four engagements for the summer sessions. We have loved your warmth, but also your learning and most importantly that you... So the first question is... Do we know anything about the teachings of Jesus or his claims of being a saviour from texts outside the Bible? Yes, uh, in that uh, the Josephus passage and a passage by uh, Tacitus both make clear that he uh, claimed to be Messiah, or Christos. Um, And so it's very clear that... um, even non-Christians heard that he was more than a teacher, that he was actually the Messiah, the claimed Messiah. Even though Tacitus as a Roman wouldn't have, meant, or wouldn't have known what that meant, the fact that he records it as the word he's heard about Jesus at least tells us that it was pretty strong, uh, a pretty strong claim. Thank you. Any practical advice on how we can love our enemies today? Hmm. Not really. Um, See, the thing is, uh, the important thing perhaps is to not get caught up on the word love, which has been so sort of sentimentalized and romanticized in our culture, uh, and and forget that the sort of the root idea of love is is not a romantic or even a warm, fuzzy affection. It's to will the good of the other. And so this is why Jesus will will say um, in close parallel... Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. So it's like, I, I might not be able to feel warm fuzzies toward people who hate me, you know, and criticize me or whatever, right? I might f- feel no warm fuzzies, but I can will the good of the other. And I, I think that's the thing to think of. And, you know, just psychologists maybe can explain this better than I could probably. Uh, well, definitely they could explain it better than I can. But actually, you know, um, choosing to will the good of the other can actually over time, over time, <laughs> uh, wear down the resentments that might be clouding that judgment. Um, I'm, I'm not saying 
just will the good of the other and soon you'll love them like your best friend. I, I don't think it works like that. But I do think that willing the good of the other can just remove those layers of resentment that make it very difficult. Thank you, John. Question three. Was there something particularly going on within the Jewish nation that made it ready to take on board the revolutionary teachings of Jesus? It's a hard one, isn't it? Because at one level you could say it didn't go so well for Jesus. Um, you know, his message was rejected and he ended up on a cross for a reason. Uh, he, he was really rejected by the leadership. And so um, one of the interesting things, if you, if you do a sort of close read of the Gospels, um, it's pretty clear the establishment in his day, for the most part, hated him. And this is partly because he was so popular, but partly because he kept on saying things like, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and so on. Um, and that didn't really fit with the hopes of some in his day. Some of the elites, the religious elites, thought the way forward was the way of power and conquering the Romans who had um, conquered Israel way back in 63 BC. They had been the rulers of Israel. And many pious people in his, Jesus' day thought the kingdom of God's first job was to throw out the Romans and that we should be ready to fight the Romans. And so the love your enemy, do good to those who hate you, didn't really fit. Now that's the elites who didn't really like what Jesus said. The interesting thing is if you read the Gospels closely, loads of others... You know, thousands upon thousands of others below the elites actually thought this was something inexplicably beautiful and compelling. Um, and so I want to say there were conditions, uh, particularly to do with the Roman occupation, that meant Jesus' teaching was rejected by some, but there are probably conditions that were right sociologically to make people long for a kingdom of love because there was just so much hate in the air and loads of people just said can we breathe love and and Jesus brought not just a teaching about love but a radical teaching about love rooted in his own activity of giving himself on the cross yeah thank you what do I do if I think he's a good teacher but just can't believe that he's also the saviour. I mean, I'd need to talk to you uh, about what your reasons uh, for rejecting the latter are. I can't, I can't really give a blanket um, answer to this. Uh, other than to say, um, read the Gospels so that you've got a front row seat to the whole show. Um, don't just rely on like a Sunday school memory or just what Christians say or, you know, a sermon that I've given or whatever. Read the Gospels yourself and I, I do think, as um, Albert Einstein said, um, he, he pulsates from every page of the gospel. I think that is an experience. So I would re recommend that you read the gospels and see if you can put together the logic. How can you uh, revere his teachings and cope with the fact that this teacher who you think said beautiful things also said that he is the saviour of the world, the lord of the world, the judge of the world, etc. Like what explains that? I mean, did he suddenly lose his mind when he started talking about himself? Did he, did he speak such sublime words as love your enemy, good to, do good to those who hate you? And then when he said, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Did he, did he suddenly become a man who thought he was a poached egg? Which is how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, you know, a man who said the things Jesus said about himself was either a devil, a liar, or a madman on the level of a man who thinks he's a poached egg. So, so that's, that's what I'll do. Just, just simply read the Gospels and try and hold those two thoughts together. How can you commend his teaching and then reject what he actually said about himself? Thank you, John. For those of you who um, are thinking along the lines of that, the welcomers will be handing out an essential Jesus, which is one of the Gospels, so that you can take that home and sit with it, as John has said, and read. And our last question for this evening... Will you be talking about the evidence for Jesus' resurrection? Um, next week, I'm going to be talking about the miracles of Jesus, the healings of Jesus, for which there is weirdly a lot of evidence, and I'll explain why. And I might, I might offer a few remarks about the resurrection, but I'm not going to focus on the resurrection next week. I'm just going to focus on the healings of Jesus. Uh, because Bruce has invited me back, I'm pretty sure, yeah, <laughs> to, to uh, preach on Easter Day, on Easter Sunday. And um, I'm pretty sure I should do the resurrection then, right? Yeah. So I'll do the resurrection, why I think, why I think the resurrection is real historically and why I think it changes everything. Uh, so I'll, I'll, just a little bit next week, uh, but Easter Day. Jo Thank you, John. And now on to equally exciting stuff. All right, so our first one. In what ways today do you think we're most in danger of projecting ourselves onto Jesus? Hmm, good question. Um, oh, loads of ways. Uh, obviously, the ways that I mentioned, uh, many people sort of just reduce Jesus to the teacher who said lovely things and leave it at that. And I think Christians can do the same. And um, one, of the, one of the things that um, can be the resolution to this, in fact, perhaps the only antidote to this projecting onto Jesus thing, is to read the Gospels, lots. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, these four biographies, are at the front of the New Testament for a reason. That's the foundation. And um, so uh, Christians should be reading the Gospels over and over, not neglecting the other parts of the Scripture, but those four Gospels are the foundation. And uh, so that's the, only, that's the only solution. But the thing is, you find people, you know, left-wingers project onto Jesus, the left-wing Jesus. Right-wingers project onto Jesus, the right-wing Jesus. And both of them are heresies, right? Just to lose friends from both the left and the right in one swoop. Um, but, but splitting apart that left-right thing, I mean, that whole left and right progressive uh, and conservative thing in our, in our Western culture is actually the splitting apart of things that Christianity held together in the West for a long time, um, both an emphasis on social justice but also an emphasis on private morality. These things have been split right apart as um, left and right. Anyway, that, you don't need to know that. But, but that's one profound way that our culture is projecting onto Jesus. And when you come back to Jesus, you find one minute he sounds like the crazy lefty and then the next minute he sounds like the, the most conservative Bible-thumping person you ever met. And then uh, another time he doesn't sound like any of those because he's not. He's, he's not left or right. He, and he's not left and right. He, he's something altogether different. Yeah. So read the Gospels. Good answer. Thanks. And great question. Okay. 
Second one, if disciple is another way of saying student, what does it mean or look like to be a student of Jesus today? Yeah, well, the word disciple does just mean student. It is actually just the word for student in a school in the ancient world. Um, but of course, to be a student um, doesn't just mean to like learn and memorize, <laughs> right? Uh, or even just have a deep theological understanding. To be a real student of the one who said love your enemies actually means to go and love your enemies. Uh, to be a real student of the one who said uh, be merciful because your father is merciful means to really let that mercy of God sink into your heart. So I don't want to give the impression it's just academic. That, that would be a false impression. But again, um, how do students learn? They, they um, throw themselves into the material that is the teaching. And the fundamental material is what's in the Gospels. Um, and the rest of the Bible, yes. But the Gospels are kind of the centering place. You study them. You try and understand them. You try and work out what this might mean. You discuss it with other people. You listen to teachers. You share views. You come at it at different angles. You, you, you read a portion in the morning. You try and live it out that day. And then you come back and you read it again. Like you, you, you analyze and do, analyze and do, analyze and do, talk with others. And that whole process, I think, is part of what it means to be a student. Yeah. But I, I, guess, I, I guess the reason I want to push us in this, to, to notice this, is that I, it's sometimes possible for Christianity to become too much about just doing stuff or just feeling stuff. But actually, Christianity is into doing and feeling, but only as reflections of the, the reality of some fundamental teachings that we've got to get our heads around. So Christianity, in its ideal form, is emotional, practical, and intellectual. It's able to hold all of those things together at the same time. Thank you. All right. How can we talk about and uphold Jesus' brand of love in a culture that maintains that love requires us to accept everything? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question, and it's a vital question. Um, I think the starting point is to point out that simply accepting everything is really easy. Like, that's not an ethical feat. If I, if I just think nothing's wrong, anything goes, how is that loving? Surely the most profound act is where you disagree with someone and love them. That's much harder. Just to say, oh, I agree with you, it's like, hmm, okay. But the profound thing that Jesus was able to do is disagree with people who weren't following his way and then invite them to dinner. So Jesus was widely known as the friend of sinners who ate and drank with the sinners, but not because he thought the sinners were just fine, just go and live how you like, no worries. You read the Gospels and he's preaching against sins and calling people sinners and then saying, ah, I'm coming to your house today for a meal, would that be okay? And they go, what? You, you would be my friend? Um, so Jesus was able to hold these two things together. And I think that is the most spectacular thing. Our culture has lost the ability to disagree and love at the same time. It's a, it's a real blind spot in our culture that the church needs to recover. I mean, the church has sometimes forgotten this too. Church has sometimes got to the point where people we disagree with or acts that we disagree with, we must shun. We must look down. And that's just as big a mistake. But the real genius of Jesus 
was the ability to have strident moral views and theological views and love people who didn't agree with those views. Yeah. Great. Let's do two more, Nath, okay? Um, all right. How should we go about engaging with mates who only see Jesus as teacher, not savior? Well, um, introduce them to a gospel, for one, and it's pretty hard to maintain that for long, you know, because it soon, soon becomes clear in reading Luke's gospel that the guy who said all sorts of beautiful things, like love your neighbor, love your enemy, do good to those who hate you, ends up saying, uh, and I'm the judge of the world. So, so what that does is it forces people who just want the lovely teachings of Jesus to go, oh, hang on, I've got to do something with this. Because the guy I thought was an awesome teacher when he was saying nice things also said the most outrageous things, like he's the judge of the world, like he's the savior of the world, like he's the Lord. So what does that mean? Does that mean Jesus was insane to think that of himself? And if he was insane... How did he say such remarkably beautiful things? What do I do? So it's confronting the real Jesus in the Gospels, I think, where all the fun happens. All right, final question. Why do so many people suppose that all world religions have universal themes of love, kindness, etc.? All religions teach the same thing. At least the one I read does is a poem by Steve Turner. I think it's gorgeous, it captures the world sentiment. All the religions of the world teach the same thing, at least the one I read does. And, and what he's saying is, what happens is people who grow up in the sort of Western environment, okay, no matter what your nationality, if you grow up in a Western environment, uh, where it is assumed that love is the center of Christianity, we just think that's just so bloomin' sensible, everyone must have thought that. I mean, Hugh McKay did it. And he's a really smart guy. Um, we, we just think, you know, from the sample of one that we've experienced, all the religions must teach the same thing. And look, frankly, they don't. They don't teach the same thing. And I guess the only way you can do that is study the religions uh, for themselves, read the Gospels and study one of the other religions. But I think our culture is driven to, to say all religions teach the same universal truth because we want everyone to get along. And I, I can understand that desire. We don't want people to get into arguments and disagreements and haven't there been wars of religion in the past? And so, so let's just calm down and say that we all teach the same thing, okay? Can we all just say we teach the same thing? It's like this nervous, let's create the peace. But the thing is, you've got to turn your brain off to really pull that off because they don't teach the same thing. And I, I, I think when you study the religions, you end up having to make a choice. They can't all be true because they say things that aren't just different, that actually contradict each other. So I've I got to choose. Yeah. Do you have a book you can recommend on religions? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's unfair. Yes, I wrote one. Yes. Yeah. That might be a good place to start. Yes, let's thanks, thank John. <laughs> thank you.